0: Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be back from vacation and to be able to be with you today and share God's Word with you. And uh, we're talking this morning about the generosity of God. So, one of the phrases that I never had to teach our kids is the phrase, it's not fair. You agree with me? Those of you who are parents, you understand that well. Few things are ingrained in us as strongly as a sense of justice. Amen? So whether you're young or old, irreligious or religious, rich or poor, you have a deep-seated desire for justice, for things to be fair. Thus, one of the most frustrating things for us, excuse <clears> me, <throat> is when God doesn't seem to be operating according to our perception of what is fair. Jesus addressed this frustration head on in the parable that we're looking at today. So if you have ever asked God, why? Why did you let this happen to me? God, this doesn't seem fair. This story's for you. In fact, I'd like you to consider for just a moment where you have voiced that question, maybe even recently, if only in your heart. Why, God? Why did this happen? This doesn't seem fair. Maybe it's a relationship pain, a health issue, financial concern. Maybe it's something about the way God made you or the family he puts you in. Maybe it's simply an unanswered prayer that you believe should be answered. So as we begin this morning, I'd suggest on the top of your notes that you just jot down a word of something that helps you remember what in your life today or recently you've said, God, this doesn't seem fair. Just jot it down. Take a minute, please, right now. We're in week number two of our series on the parables of Jesus. Last week, Tom introduced the series with some great teaching on how to interpret the parables of Jesus. And for the sake of review, or in case you weren't here last week, I want to look again briefly at those six things. So let's review what parables are and what they are not. Let's begin with what they're not. First, parables are not morality tales. Some people sort of see parables like Aesop's fables, short stories intended to teach certain uh, good behaviors or virtues. That's not the intent of the parables of Jesus. They're not morality tales. Second, parables are not sermon illustrations. You know, pastors often use illustrations in sermons to help explain a point or to make the sermon more interesting to their audience. That's typically not how Jesus used parables, though. Jesus lived in a storytelling culture, and he used parables consistent with his culture. They weren't used to explain the main point as much as they are the very vehicle to convey the main point. But parables are not mere sermon illustrations. Third, parables are not minutely detailed mysteries to decode. Many approach parables much like a detective trying to find sort of the unseen connections between every little detail. Or they look for hidden symbolism in all the details of the parable and often that just confuses things and makes us miss the point of what the parable is trying to teach. So parables are not morality tales or sermon illustrations or minutely detailed mysteries to decode. So what are they then? How then did Jesus use parables in his teaching? Well, here's three things that they are. Number four, parables are direct responses to specific questions. I want to consider again the quote Tom shared last week by Dr. Pentecost. Parables were never spoken in a vacuum. In each instance that Christ spoke a parable, he was explaining some question or problem that his hearers were facing. Each parable was designed to solve a problem or to answer a question. To me, this is the key principle for interpreting, understanding the parables. And it helps us zero in on what Jesus' point was in telling that parable. For example, some people look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, what we're looking at this morning, and they suggest, well, Jesus was talking about who gets into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they're saying, this is, teaching about how to be saved. Well, I can confidently say that Jesus was not talking about salvation here because that isn't the question that was asked and also because people don't work for their salvation. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Others look at this same parable and they say, well, this is about how God rewards his children in heaven. But the Bible clearly teaches that rewards are granted on the basis of faithfulness and service and that each person's reward is different. The Apostle Paul wrote this, he said, every every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that certainly did not happen in this parable. Some toiled under the hot sun for 12 hours, others but one hour, and each received the very same amount. By the way, sometimes you, you might hear people talk about an 11th hour conversion, All right, someone who trusted Christ at the very last moment, just before it was too late. Some people indeed are saved at the very last moment, but that isn't what Jesus is talking about here. And we know that because that's not the question that he responded to. So if Jesus isn't talking about salvation or rewards, what is he talking about in this parable? Well, the question in the verses leading up to the parable answer that question for us. And I believe he's warning his disciples about a wrong attitude, wrong motivation in serving him. Let's go back to the six things now. Here's number five. Parables are wisdom scenes based on eternal values, eternal truths, excuse me. Rather than morality tales that teach us to value certain character traits, Jesus used parables to teach eternal truths, primarily to reveal who God is And how to live wisely before him. And that brings me to number six, the last one. Parables are reflections on the king and his kingdom. They give us glimpses of the character of God and what his kingdom will be like. And that is why for so many of the parables, the focus is on the one in authority, on the king himself. And indeed, our parable today does exactly that. As you can see from the title, the generosity of God. Let's move now to the specific parable and the question uh, that the parable addresses. So we're in Matthew chapter 20. If you haven't already, please open up your Bible and turn there. Now, chapter divisions are usually helpful to kind of help us find our way around scriptures. Occasionally, however, they can sort of hinder our understanding of a passage if they cause us to sort of overlook the context. And because this parable begins in verse 1 of chapter 20, it's easy to miss the context. Chapter 19 is the backdrop that explains why Jesus spoke these words. Okay, the context of this parable is clearly the conversation that takes place in Matthew 19. And Specifically today, we're going to zero in on Peter's question in verse 27. But before we read that question, I want to describe the larger context for us. Jesus has just had this conversation with the rich young young ruler, excuse me. With the rich young ruler about what's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And since the rich man, the young man claimed to have kept all the Old Testament commandments, Jesus zeroed in on his heart issue of trusting in his wealth. Jesus tells him, "Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, Come, follow me. The man heard that. He went away disappointed. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to them, How difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, for those who are trusting in their wealth to enter God's kingdom. So listen now to Peter's response to that statement that Jesus just made. It was in the form of a question. Here's what he says Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What then? Will we have? What then will we have? In other words, the rich young man had not forsaken all, but Lord, I've forsaken all, the rest of your disciples have forsaken all to follow you. What about us? What will we have in the kingdom? And here's our Lord's answer, beginning at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Indeed, the Lord says, your reward will be great in the kingdom. But... Jesus detected an attitude of Peter's heart he felt was dangerous. Was Peter following the Lord only for what he could get out of it? Were the disciples serving Christ because of that reward he had promised them? Jesus detected this subtle attitude in Peter's heart that he decided he needed to address. And that begins in verse 30. So let's read verse 30. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. The operative principle in the kingdom of heaven is not merit, but grace. It's not what we deserve, it's the grace of God. And we readily understand that principle in the context of salvation. We talk about that a lot. We're familiar with Paul's words, By grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. However, many times believers assume that we earn God's blessings by our works, apart from God's grace. And I believe that's the misconception this parable addresses. So with that in mind, now let's dig into the parable that Jesus teaches beginning in chapter 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We're going to see it in three scenes. The first scene is the hiring for the harvest. And that begins in verse 1 and runs through verse 7. Hiring for the harvest. So there's some talk today in our country about what is a fair minimum wage. You're probably familiar with that. Because our day is a little different than the setting of Jesus' day, we might jump to the conclusion Jesus didn't really know what he was talking about when he spoke about workers and minimum wages and stuff like that. Or even that he might have stretched the truth a bit to make a point. Understand, Jesus was a keen observer of people. Undoubtedly, he had often seen laborers in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them. I'm sure he heard the haggling over wages and the complaining at the end of a hard day. Indeed, Jesus himself labored as a carpenter for many years, and his daily experience on the earth was with laboring people. With all of that in mind, let's read now the parable itself, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he's talking about a vineyard. Grapes were one of the most important crops in the land of Israel in his day. And even when you travel to Israel today, you will notice that vineyards are all over the country of Israel especially in the hill country of Israel. It's dominated by vineyards. There's a picture of a vineyard in the Jordan River Valley of Israel. Well, that was very true in Jesus' day, as I said. And so those who heard this teaching, they were very common with what he's describing. Jesus pictures harvest time when a landowner would go out and hire seasonal workers to help with his harvest. Now, it was often necessary to hire extra help to get the harvest in. In the lower elevations, the grape harvest can begin in July, but in the hill country in Israel, the bulk of the harvest is August, September, and October. So the landowner would go into town, go to the marketplace, and hire seasonal workers to help him pick the crop before the fall rains began. Maybe some of you are like me growing up. Anybody here uh, like me grow up picking uh, berries or picking beans in the fields? Okay, you're you're familiar with seasonal work like this. The rainy season typically begins in Israel in mid-October. Let's continue now, verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So his landowner goes to the marketplace. It's very early in the morning where the laborers are gathered, hoping to be hired. And the agreed upon amount is for a denarius. That was the expected wage in that day. And here's a picture of an ancient denarius. That was the expected wage of a day laborer, a very fair wage. Now day laborers were paid at the end of each day. They typically were poor. They lived from day to day on their on their earnings, and typically didn't have savings to tide them over. That's why, by the way, the Old Testament law required that a boss pay his worker promptly at the end of each day. Withholding a wages the wages from a worker were considered a great sin. So again, the owner of the vineyards, anxious to get in the harvest before the rains start, he goes into town. He goes back to town again to the labor pool, and personally recruits more workers. We see that at verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The ancient work day was typically divided into these three-hour increments, beginning at six in the morning and running through six o'clock at night. So the landowner hired the first workers beginning at the very start of the day, 6 a.m., they were expected to work for 12 hours. But the work was great, he needed more help, and so he returns to the marketplace at the third hour, at 9 a.m., to get more help. But the abundance of the harvest is such that he does the same again at noon, and again at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and still needing more help, the landowner goes back to the marketplace and he finds men still gathered there at the five o'clock hour, at the 11th hour, just before the end of the workday. And he hires them as well. And they would have expected to receive one twelfth of a day's wage because they were only going to go and work for an hour. Now, I don't know if you noticed in the text, but there were actually two categories, two kinds of workers. The men who were hired first at 6 a.m. agreed to work for that normal daily wage of a denarius. But the workers that were hired the rest of the day had no contract. Okay? They trusted the owner who said, Whatever is right, I will give you. So one group, the early birds, had a contract for a denarius a day. The rest of the workers simply trusted the owner's word and character. Now we come to the second major episode in the parable that Jesus told. Okay? And scene two describes paying the laborers. As the workday ends, the vineyard owner is no longer hiring, but now he's paying. And we read about that beginning in verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying these, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So here's what's happening. The master, who clearly represents God, lines up all of his workers or has the foreman line them up and pay them and the more recently hired ones are at the front of the line and the ones that have worked all day are at the end of the line. And so he takes his bag of coins and he opens it up and he says, okay, five o'clock guys up front, you're first. They step forward, they're all fresh, they're energetic, they smell nice, they're not all pitted out because they've only worked an hour. All right? And so the master says, I told you I'd take care of you, so he reaches into the bag and he goes, here's a denarius for you, here's a denarius for you, here's a denarius for you, on down the line. And that... Eleventh hour group of workers is stunned as they receive 12 times as much as they expected. Well, the guys who have been working all day are at the end of the line, but they can see what's going on, right? And so they start getting excited. They're calculating in their minds. Whoa, this guy's crazy generous. That means I'm going to be getting and they're adding it up and thinking and planning how they're going to spend it. But with each group that is paid, the percentage of the bonus pay gets smaller and smaller. And the six o'clock group gets no bonus at all. At which point, they complain, wait a minute, this is no fair. We're getting the same thing as they got. Listen, few things in life seem more unfair than the equal treatment of unequals. Think about that. Few things seem more unfair than the equal treatment of unequals. Let's say that you are sent out on a training exercise. And let's say that you're in a group and someone in your group messes up and you have to repeat that training exercise all over again. And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, well, how fair is that? Right? Maybe you've been there. Maybe uh, think about this, if the way our government did SAT tests, if you go in with a group of students and take your SAT test, and whoever got the lowest score on the SAT test, what if that whole group was assigned that as their score? We'd say unfair, wouldn't we? It's interesting when you consider that the master of the vineyard could have avoided this whole controversy by simply paying the workers in the order that they'd been hired. He could have given the first workers their denarius and sent them on their way. They would have been happy and none the wiser, right? But he insists on paying them in reverse order. The guys who work the shortest time get paid first and the 12-hour workers get last, get paid last. It's almost like he's trying to pick a fight. And I think he's doing it this way on purpose to make a point. So what is that point? Let's keep reading. Let's consider scene three, which is the answer to Peter's question. We begin by reading in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I... I, excuse me, let me go back up. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? Again, what was it that Peter asked the Lord? Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? In other words, Lord, what do we have to look forward to in the kingdom? Now, this story, this parable, scarcely models good management labor practices, but it does disclose profound truths about the nature of God. And I believe we see three main truths here. First of all, that God is always at least fair. God is fair. That's the point of verses 13 and 14. The vineyard owner readily agreed to pay the first group a denarius, the ordinary wage for a day's labor. And to them, his response was simply, Friend, I did you no know, wrong. Didn't you agree for that?" to that? The landowner reminded them of their agreement and of his full compliance with it. In the same way, our God is absolutely fair and just. How then do we explain things in our lives that just don't seem fair to us? Well, it's the age-old problem of our human understanding our limited understanding. But remember, God is absolutely fair, even though we might not understand it until later. Here's truth number two. God is generous. Not only is God fair with all, he is often more generous than he needs to be. He could have paid the workers exactly what they earned, but instead he paid them according to their need. He understood that these workers had families to support and they needed to earn to support them. He paid them according to grace rather than the letter of the law. So notice again verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And when the master said that, I suspect that some of those who were lined up there and who had just been paid probably thought to themselves, well, yes, actually, I do begrudge your generosity. Honestly, I'd rather have justice. You know, I I understand justice. Justice is predictable. It's comfortable. I want to deserve what I get and get what I deserve. And that's where I imagine Jesus probably got a little twinkle in his eye. Really? You really want justice? You want to talk about what you deserve? I don't think you want to go there. Friend, justice is a dead end, literally. This parable focuses especially on the workers who were hired at the 11th hour. They were treated extremely generously, receiving 12 times what they had earned on an hourly basis. And beloved, this is the way God treats us. Over and over again, the Bible portrays God as gracious and generous, blessing us not according to what we deserve, but often, but according to our needs and often beyond our needs. Here's the third takeaway that we see. Truth number three is God will reward all his children fairly and generously. So the truth is we're all like those 11th hour laborers. None of us have come close to the sacrifice made by Peter or James or John. None of us have come close to loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. or loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so let us learn to be thankful for all that God gives us and not begrudge the blessings he gives to others. Listen, God's kingdom functions according to different rules than we might be tempted to believe. His ways are not our ways, the Bible says. And we can't judge his ways from our earthly perspective any more than the laborers could judge the owner of the vineyard by theirs. Now the key to understanding this parable is that phrase, the last will be first and the first last. That saying, in fact, bookends the parable that Jesus taught. It was in the very last verse of chapter 19 and it's again the very last verse right after the parable. So clearly, Jesus had that phrase in mind when he told the parable. And I think this is his point. You don't want to be in a contract relationship with God. You don't want to receive what you really deserve. Better just to follow the master and trust in his grace like the 11th hour guys did. It will work out a whole lot better for you. Better to be last in this life, in fact, trusting in God's grace, than always scrapping to get everything you think you deserve. Listen, so many of our spiritual problems, so much of our unrest, comes from having sort of a contract mentality in our relationship with God, or believing that God owes us something, and wanting to get what we deserve. So let me give you some signs that you might might just have a contract mentality toward God. Remember, Jesus is calling out Peter and his motivation and his attitude. And it's a dangerous heart attitude that begins, first of all, with comparison. Comparison. Beware of watching others and comparing yourself with them. That's what the laborers who were hired first did, right? But comparison is deadly. When we get our eyes off the Lord and start watching other people, certain definite symptoms typically follow. To begin with, it often leads to bitterness and jealousy. Friend, we give ourselves way too much credit. I think we buy into our culture's belief that we deserve what we have. Do we really? Do we really deserve credit for what we have or what we've accomplished or what we've experienced here in life? Have you ever stopped to think about the many blessings that you've received that you didn't do anything to deserve? Okay, did you grow up in a home where you were loved and cared for and provided for? You were blessed. Did your family or others take an interest in you and provide an education for you? And you have been blessed with a great gift, my friend. Or how about this? Think about the fact that you live in the United States with so many opportunities Instead of some war-torn nation where survival is about all you can think about day after day. Again, we are so blessed. We've been given so much more than we deserve. Paul put it this way when he wrote his brothers and sisters in Corinth. Paul said, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? But we so easily fail to recognize the grace of God that has been lavished upon us. Please, please don't look around and compare yourself to others. Sign number two of a contract mentality toward God is bitterness. Notice that word grumble in verse 11. The 12-hour workers are grumbling. They're bitter because they thought they deserved more. But again, what Jesus is getting at is really everything good you receive in life beyond death and hell is a gift. It's a gift. You know, sometimes we ask, Lord, why? Why did this happen? This is bad. Why did you allow this? Listen, if if all Jesus did in your life was save you from hell, and after that, everything else in your earthly life was taken away, we would still be the recipients of the most generous level of grace, grace that we never deserved. No matter what you go through here on this earth, don't you think that when you get to heaven, you are going to be singing the words Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But when you say, God, you owe me this blessing or this thing, we're trying to go back toward a contract relationship with God. And that's not where you want to be. Beware of the problem of bitterness. Sign number three of a contract relationship is jealousy. Ask yourself the question, am I jealous of the good things that I see others have that I want? In the parable, that's exactly what these workers were. They were jealous. But often we're like that as well, aren't we? We look around and we say, well, why why did they get that opportunity? I wish I had that opportunity. Or why did they get that job? Or why did they get to be married or have children? Or why are they so healthy and I'm not? Why this? Why that? But how can I be envious of God's gift given to others when I myself have been given so much? Listen, you can't be jealous and grateful both at the same time. We can be one or the other. And don't you see that envy and jealousy are part of that contract mentality? Isn't everything good that you have received a gift of grace from God? Like the Master said to the late-day workers, Jesus also has promised us, just trust me, I will take care of you. Trust me. You know, I think the fruit of jealousy springs from two evil roots. One is unbelief in the goodness of God, who has promised to take care of us. And the other is foolish pride that that assumes that God owes us certain things. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller puts it in his book, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. This is what he said. If Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, How can I complain while I experience a life infinitely better than I deserve? Powerful words. And we're going to end here because this is where Jesus ended the parable. But I want to go one last time to verse 16. Having concluded the parable, Jesus offered his listeners this single line of commentary. He said, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Whoever tries to claw their way to the front of the line, God will make sure they end up last. Whoever lives this life here in this world, living for the things of this world, will find themselves last when it gets to heaven. So let's talk about some application as we wrap it up. Some next steps. Number one is this. I will concentrate on just serving God faithfully. Again, Jesus gave this parable because he wanted to confront a heart attitude that he saw that needed confronting. But we can be there just as fast. Okay? We, we think we're saved by grace, but sometimes that we earn God's favor and blessing because we do certain things. I think God wants us to let go of that contract mentality and ser- just serve Him faithfully. Serve Him not to get anything out of it, not to earn His favor, not for the reward. Just serve Him and trust Him because we love Him. I will concentrate on serving God faithfully. Next step, two is I will express gratitude for God's grace in my life. In other words, I need to get rid of that contract mentality and just be grateful for every blessing God's already given me. Humbly embrace the grace of God and trust His generosity and goodness, the one who called me to follow Him. And when you do that, When you do that, I promise the bitterness will be replaced by gratitude. The jealousy will be replaced by contentment. And the anger replaced by peace. It's a good place to be. For some of you, this might be a game changer today. Maybe you walked in here with sort of a contract mentality toward God. And you're going to walk out of here with a simple trust in God and his generosity and goodness to you. That's good because it leads to gratitude and to contentment and peace. And then finally, this is not on your notes, but maybe some of you have never taken that very first step to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're hearing today, you know, God saves me by grace, not because I can earn his forgiveness. It's a gift of grace, not by work so that no one can boast. And if that's you, my friend, I want to encourage you to trust Christ today. Receive him by faith and his gift of forgiveness before you leave. And I'll give you a chance to do that as we close right now. Would you bow and pray with me, please? Let's bow. Father God, we thank you for your generosity toward us. Thank you that you deal with us in grace. That you give us so much more than we deserve. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion. You have chosen to forgive us by grace through the finished work of Jesus for us. Your your justice is utterly perfect. Your love is amazing. And we confess today that that, uh, we often don't see it. We're blind to it. But someday, we know that you're going to be glorified in a way that's unmistakable, that you're going to set everything right, and we will see it. Through eyes that understand perfectly. And until that day, Lord, we wait eagerly. Help us not to just passively serve you or or question your goodness, but help us to be actively serving you with motives that are right before you, just out of simple love, out of appreciation for all that you've done for us. And then, friend, if you're here today and you've never taken that first step of faith toward God, received his forgiveness. I just encourage you in the silence of this moment, would you just pray and ask God to forgive you right now? Just silently say, Father, I need your forgiveness. Thank you that I can't earn it. I don't have to to get to heaven by being good or by doing uh, certain things, but I can receive forgiveness as a gift. And today I ask for that gift. Lord, we thank you for your forgiving grace in our lives. And we thank you for your generosity to us day after day after day. And we say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name. Thank you for your benefits and your blessings and your goodness to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.